This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, classism and ableism, and violence and threats of violence, including allusions to torture. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 295. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you the latest on my writing endeavors. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 36 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Sasha and Rebecca tracked down Danny and Jared, who had fallen asleep together in Overlook Park thanks to a heady combination of alcohol and the sci-enhancing drug Shimmer. Sasha reached out to Danny's mind and found Daniel, whose consciousness had been strengthened by the ritual spell they performed in Chapter 31. Daniel was confused and disoriented, but with Sasha's prodding, he succeeded in taking control of his and Danny's shared body. Sasha further helped him by telepathically dampening his emotions, as a mixture of guilt, fear, and grief threatened to overwhelm him. Together, they made it out to Sasha and Rebecca's skimmer, and escaped the Citadel before Jared could wake up. Meanwhile, Brian and his team were beginning to make sense of the data they had stolen from Viscount Security. Though most of it is still encrypted, it was quickly evident that the Syndicate had, indeed, imported some kind of nanotech weapon. Figuring out what that weapon was, and how to counter it, will take a lot more time and resources, but the Hive is pleased with Brian's success. The status of the Summer Cell is once again secure. That means that they can turn their attention to other issues, like the psychological trauma that left Fiona terrified of becoming helpless. Fiona can't remember what might have caused that trauma, but she's willing to start interrogating it, and that's a huge step forward for her. At the end of the chapter, Daniel wrote a goodbye letter to Jared, explaining why he had to leave. Though Jared had said that he wasn't bothered by the fact that Danny was an androgyne, the fact was that he was only interested in a relationship with her feminine side, and since Daniel and Danny are really two people sharing a single body, that wasn't going to work. Daniel isn't willing to disappear into nothingness and let Danny take over his whole life. They have to find a way to live with each other, and that's not something they'll ever be able to do with Jared around. Goodbye, Jared, Daniel wrote. I am truly sorry. I wish to the gods that things were different. 
Daniel. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 36 By the time they reached the nest, Daniel could cry no longer. The pain and grief and guilt had burned themselves out in one terrible firestorm of emotion, leaving him numb and exhausted. There was nothing left but a dull ache and the sickening dread of what tomorrow would bring. Sasha went up to the nest ahead of them. She was already deep in conversation with Fiona and Brian when Daniel and Rebecca reached the door. They fell silent as Daniel entered their eyes following him as Rebecca helped him across the kitchen and down the hall to the second bedroom. Daniel didn't look at them as he went past. He didn't want to see Sasha's pity, or Brian's shock, or Fiona's suspicion. His pathetic telepathic talents, temporarily boosted by the effects of the shimmer, already told him more than he wanted to know. Daniel slipped off Danny's shoes and fell onto the bed without a word. He was so, so tired. He wanted to bury himself under the covers and wait for everything to stop. To stop hurting, stop thinking, stop feeling. To just stop. Oblivion would be preferable to facing the consequences of his own fucked-up choices. But then he remembered what Oblivion had felt like and the fear fell over him like a blanket of ice. He remembered being trapped in the empty museum of his mind, where Danny had stolen his memories and left him with almost nothing of himself to hold on to. He shuddered. Some things, it seemed, were worse than living. Rebecca clambered onto the bed behind him, wrapping her arm around him as her pregnant belly pressed against his back. At the same time, her mind wrapped around his, gentle thoughts running over him like cool water. He closed his eyes and sighed, placing his hand over hers where it touched his chest. Her fingers spread open and intertwined with his, the way they had a thousand times before. He'd almost forgotten what it felt like. "'Rest,' Rebecca whispered. "'Just rest now. It's gonna be all right.' I'm afraid, Daniel said, after a moment. Afraid that if I go to sleep, I'm going to lose you again. That she'll take control. She won't, Rebecca said, her voice soft and gentle. It's all about who wants it more, right? Who wants to be here? Daniel nodded. That's what Ava told me. She kissed the back of his neck. Then rest in me. I'll stay here and keep you safe. Sleep now, and know that I'll be here when you wake up. Her arm held him closer, and her hand turned to clasp his. That's enough to make you come back to me, isn't it? Daniel squeezed her hand and let his thoughts open up to her, welcoming her presence in his mind. He breathed in her scent, and in spite of everything, his body began to relax. 
He raised her hand to his lips and kissed it. Always, he whispered, as he closed his eyes again and let himself drift into darkness. Always. Brian sat with Sasha and Fiona around the kitchen table. His eyes strayed to the door of the second bedroom before turning back to his cellmates. This is a problem, he said. Sasha smirked, but there wasn't much humor in the expression. No kidding. Actually, Fiona said, it is several problems. She raised a hand and began counting off points on her fingers. What shall we do about Rebecca and Daniel? Can anything be done about the rift between Daniel's personalities? And, most importantly, what shall we do with the knowledge that there is a man with the power to change people's souls? Brian took off his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. Priority one is figuring out if we can help Daniel. We need to know if whatever Jared did to Danny is permanent, or if it only lasts as long as she's in contact with him. If it is permanent, we need to know if there's any way to reverse it. Sasha raised her eyebrows. I don't suppose we want to bring the hive in on this. She didn't look enthusiastic about the idea. Brian shook his head. Out of the question. If the hive knew what Jared can do, they'd try to turn him into a weapon. And then they'd start testing every other teep in the collective to find more people who can do what he does. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of the Hive getting its hands on the power to change the minds of anyone who disagrees with them. Sasha shuddered. Fiona looked like she'd swallowed something unpleasant. A year ago, I would have disagreed with you. An ability of this sort would be a powerful tool to protect us from the mundanes. She shook her head fractionally. But in light of recent events... I doubt that we would use such a tool responsibly. It must remain secret. What about Elder Bakhtavar? Sasha asked. She knows that something happened to change Daniel. She knows we were going to rescue him. Even if she hasn't read our minds, she's smart enough to put the pieces together. Maybe, Brian said. But she's as wary of the rest of the hive as we are, and she's strong enough to keep this to herself. I expect that she'll talk to us about it at some point, but I don't think we should look to her for any help in the short term. She's got enough to worry about, just trying to find Victor and this girl he took. Silence fell over the table as they considered that. All of them had admired Victor Hincavos during their years of service with MID. He was their mentor, after all. He had taught them more about covert ops than any other single person they knew. With what Miriam had told them, though, it had become obvious that he was not the man they'd believed him to be. We should offer to help her, Sasha said, her expression troubled. To think that he took one of his own students. She reached up and clasped her crucifix as her eyes went distant. Brian put a hand on her shoulder. I'm worried for her too, Sasha, but we've got enough problems of our own to deal with. Miriam has plenty of resources to draw on. She doesn't need us. Besides, Fiona added, if Victor is the threat that Miriam believes him to be, it would be unwise to draw his attention to our family. Agreed, Brian said. He looked back at Sasha and squeezed her shoulder. 
We've played the hero enough for one year. If Miriam does come to you for help on this, just tell her that we asked you not to get involved, all right? Sasha didn't look convinced, but she sighed and nodded. All right. I guess we do have enough on our plates already. You got a plan in mind to help Daniel? More of an idea than a plan. What do you think about taking him to that wizard, Artax? Sasha let out a humorless laugh. I think the guy is a creepy old lecher, but he knows his stuff. He's been wrapped up in this from the beginning, so if anybody's going to be able to figure out what's wrong with Danny, it'll be him. Brian looked to Fiona. Any thoughts, Fee? Fiona shook her head. I haven't met him, so I have nothing useful to add. I dislike the idea of involving a mundane in our problems, but it does have one advantage. His kind have as much to fear as we do, if the truth of Jared's talent should become known. Brian nodded. All right, then. Tomorrow I'll get started on this decrypt for the Viscount files, and Sasha and Bex can take Daniel off to see the wizard. Sounds good. Sasha reached a hand across the table to Fiona. Which leaves just one more thing to deal with, she said gently. Fiona took her hand and looked into her eyes. After a long moment, she looked away. Yes, she said, but that can wait for now. I would prefer to have a good night's sleep before I begin dissecting my past. Sasha's grip tightened against Fiona's. All right, but we're going to start tomorrow, as soon as I get back from taking Daniel to see Artax. I'll do whatever I can to help you, Fee, but you've got to be willing to open up to me. The healing starts when you decide it starts. Fiona closed her eyes and gave one brief nod. I understand. Brian reached out his hand and covered both of theirs. Let's get some sleep. Our problems can wait a few hours. He gave them half a smile. They'll still be waiting for us in the morning. They rose as one and headed for the master bedroom. They always are, Sasha said. Captain Egan Hunter was getting really, really sick of the lower levels of Metamore City. The PSYOP had spent the last three weeks trudging through the worst neighborhoods the city had to offer, looking for leads on the whereabouts of Victor Hincavos and Abby Preston. It was an exercise that would try the patience of the prophet herself. For one thing, it was always dark down here. The towers got wider the closer they got to the ground, so more than half of the neighborhoods were actually inside. And even when you were outside, the walls always felt like they were closing in on you. It was dirty, too. With 15 million people and four layers of skyways overhead— Every piece of filth you could imagine washed down to the street sooner or later. And then there were the people. Gods don't even get him started on the people. They were twitchy and nasty, and they smelled bad, and they hated to see guys like Egan come around asking questions. Especially dangerous questions, like whether they knew where to find a former government operative turned mercenary, or the teenage girl who was running with him. Fortunately, Egan didn't actually need them to answer the questions most of the time. 
As a level 10 telepath, he could usually pluck the answers out of their heads as soon as he asked the questions. Some of them required a bit more persuasion to open up, but Egan had plenty of experience with that, too. He'd worked counterintelligence for MID for the last ten years, looking for leaks and traitors inside the Empire's top spy agency. There was no one better suited to resisting interrogation than an MID operative, and no one better suited to finding a rogue operative than Egan Hunter. Especially this rogue operative. Egan and Victor had been roommates at Westfall, and graduated together back in 1980. They'd served together for five years in PSYOPs before Egan was pulled for CI duty. Partied together, trained together, chased the same women together. Egan wasn't sure he ever would have called Victor a friend. Victor had never been the sort of guy you could get close to. But he probably knew the man better than anyone else in the collective. For that reason, more than anything else, Elder Bakhtivar had tapped him to help find Victor and close this pathetic little chapter of hive incompetence. Victor had played them all for suckers, and Egan suspected that was the real reason the Elder was so eager to find him. The old lady probably just hated to look like a fool. Fortunately, she was paying him very well to cover her ass for her. Egan hadn't gotten this sort of cash in his discretionary account since... No. Don't think about that. Just don't go there, man. Leave it the hell alone. Egan looked up at the building in front of him and grimaced. Another trashy, low-rent apartment complex built into the side of a tower. He was on the first Skyway level, not the street, so it wasn't quite the slums, but it was a long way from being one of the nicer parts of the level. He looked at the crumbling red-brick facade and imagined what the place must smell like. He pulled out his phone and dialed a number. Someone answered on the second ring. Yeah? Mackie, are you sure about this address? I wouldn't let my dog spend the night in this trash heap. Look, Governor, what you do with your dog is your own business, right? Don't concern me one way or another. You asks, Mackie, where can I find this here bloke and his bird, right? So as I put out the word, so to speak. And I hears back, they stay in a dis here building. Then I passes the word back to you, don't I? But Mackie doesn't vouch for the ver- veracity of the source. Only knows what I hears. Egan rolled his eyes and sighed. All right, fine. Thanks again, Mackie. Keep it on the bright side, Governor. His phone beeped as Mackie rang off. Egan looked at the apartment complex closely. Since it was half-built into the side of the tower, all of the windows faced in one direction, directly out toward the skyway. Likewise, there was one entrance from the outside. No doubt there was an entrance on the tower side, too, but they could always pull the tower's internal security feed to watch that end. On the whole, it wouldn't be a terribly hard building to do surveillance on. All he needed was a good vantage point. He found it on the opposite side of the skyway, where a cheap hotel sat facing the apartments from across the street. It was after two in the morning, but the light on the hotel sign still read vacancy, so he went up to the security window and pushed the call button. The night manager's face appeared behind the bulletproof glass a moment later. What you want? 
I need a room with a window, Egan said. He didn't bother to add that it needed to face the skyway. All the windows in this dump were facing the same direction. Gonna need it for a while. Maybe two or three nights, maybe longer. The night manager looked at Egan, looked behind him, and frowned. Just you? Egan spread his hands, as if to say, I'm the only one here, dipshit. The man grunted, then rustled through some papers that were lying outside Egan's line of sight. The guy was nervous, just like everybody else Egan dealt with down here. Everyone was afraid that someone was going to poke into their pathetic Mundy lives and discover their dirty little Mundy secrets. Like Egan gave a rat's ass if this guy was dealing drugs, or fucking his neighbor's wife. Egan kept out of the guy's mind. He didn't want to know what was in there. Rooting around in the heads of bottom feeders always made him feel like he needed a shower. Finally, the night manager turned back to Egan. Rates 50 marks a night, or 250 for the week. You pay cash, and you pay up front, before 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or I throw your crap over the edge of the skyway. Egan resisted the urge to glare at him. For a place like this, the rate was outrageous, but it wasn't like it was his money anyway. He pulled a roll of bills out of his pocket and peeled off five twenties, then put them inside the box under the window. After he closed the box, he heard the man unlatch it on the other side and pull out the money. A moment later, he held up a room key in front of the window, then put it inside the box. Egan took it and looked at the number. It was on the third floor, which would give him a good vantage point on the apartment where Victor and Abby were reportedly staying. The front door buzzed as the lock disengaged. Egan pushed his way inside, then bypassed the dingy-looking elevator and took an equally dingy-looking set of stairs up to the third floor. The lighting was sparse in the long hallway. Most of the bulbs seemed to be underpowered, and a few of them had burned out and hadn't been replaced. The carpet frayed at the edges, and the baseboard badly needed a new paint job. The wallpaper was starting to peel at the seams. Gods, this place is a rat hole. Egan had seen better-looking places at street level. Not many, granted, but a few. As he walked toward his room, he pulled out his phone and called Elder Bakhtavar. She didn't answer. Not surprising, given how late it was, but he did have his orders. A single beep told him that the voicemail service had picked up. Elder, this is Agent Hunter. I got a tip that Victor's holed up in an apartment on the first level. He pulled out his small notepad and read off the address Mackie had given him. No visual yet, but I'm setting up surveillance now. I'll let you know as soon as I hear anything further. Hunt her out. He put away the phone just as he reached the door to his assigned room. He unlocked it and pushed his way inside. The door gave a loud creak as it swung open and shut. The room was dark, with only a little light creeping in from the skyway lamps outside. Egan groped for the light switch, found it, and flipped it on. Nothing happened. Prophet fucking Starchild, Egan snarled, slamming his fist against the wall in exasperation. He turned to the door, intending to go back and give the night manager a piece of his mind. An invisible force picked him up and flung him into the bathroom. 
He hit the wall and then fell on top of the toilet. Ow! Fuck! The door to the bathroom swung shut, leaving him in darkness. But it was the silence that frightened him. A level 10 teep lived with a constant background hum, all the thoughts and emotions of the people around him. Egan had stopped noticing it a long time ago, but when it was taken away, the resulting lack of noise was unsettling. He pulled out his gun. Then the door briefly swung open and shut again, and there was something else in the room with him. Not a human mind. Or, if it was, it wasn't a sane one. The thoughts were all fragmented, disjointed, incomprehensible. He tried to reach out and grab that mind, tried to bend it to his will, but there was nothing there that he could get a hold on. Every thought that his mind touched was incomplete, and every compulsion he sent into that mind seemed to bounce right off of it. It had been a long time since Egan had been truly afraid. He'd gotten used to his powers and his skills as an operative, seeing him through most situations without too much trouble. Now, with his senses blinded and his powers seemingly useless, he reacted like a cornered animal. He pointed his gun in the direction of the thing whose mind he couldn't read, and squeezed off three shots. The sound of the gunshots was deafening in the enclosed space. He'd seen someone standing in front of him in the light of the muzzle flash, but the image was there and gone before he could identify it. His ears rang with the sound of the blasts, and he wondered how much damage he'd done. Then the figure in front of him laughed. Really, Egan, has that ever worked? Ice water ran down Egan's spine. Fuck, he whispered. No way. No fucking way. The light switch flipped on, filling the room with the sickly glow of a fluorescent tube. Egan immediately noticed the lead blankets that had been nailed to the door, walls, floor, and ceiling of the tiny room. A cheap and very effective way of shutting down a teep's abilities. Egan was much less worried about that, though, than about the man standing in front of him. Victor held the bullets in front of him, suspended in midair in his PK shield. He gestured, and they fell softly to the floor while the gun twisted itself out of Egan's grasp. Egan hit Victor with the strongest mind blast he could muster. The teak didn't even flinch. What the fuck did you do to yourself? Egan gasped. You were never good enough to block me. Things change, Egan. Victor raised a hand, and Egan was lifted off the toilet and slammed up against the wall. Victor held him there without any apparent effort, the invisible fingers of his telekinesis gently wrapping themselves around Egan's throat. In spite of his fear, a part of Egan admired Victor's skill in setting up the trap. It was obvious, in retrospect, the whole thing had been a false trail from the beginning. Mackie, the night manager, the goddamned hotel with its all-too-convenient location— all of it designed to lure Egan here. It was the sort of sting Egan might have pulled on a suspected traitor in MID, using his own knowledge of the agent's habits and techniques to create a trap he would walk into blindly. It was almost funny, really. Egan had been given this job because he knew Victor better than anyone. 
he'd never stop to consider how well Victor knew him. Now then, Victor said, I'd love to stay and catch up on old times, Egan, but I'm in kind of a hurry, so we're going to have to cut this short. I already know that the Hive as a whole isn't looking for me, which means someone is running this operation on the side. You're going to tell me who sent you, and who else they've put on this assignment. Egan spat in his face. Fuck you, Vic. You're just gonna kill me anyway. We both know that's how you operate, right? I'm not telling you shit. Victor gave him a patronizing smile. Allow me to clarify. You are going to die, Egan. You're right about that. But, see, what you should be asking yourself is how you want to die. He gestured at the side of Egan's head. I could pinch a few cranial arteries, hold them shut for, oh, maybe thirty seconds, and you'd just go to sleep. Quick, easy, and painless. He pulled a combat knife from its sheath, then placed its point gently over Egan's crotch. On the other hand, if you don't cooperate, I can stop blood flow in lots of other places, too. He lowered his voice to a conspiratorial whisper. I've always wondered exactly how many pieces you could cut a man into before he'd finally die. They never let me try it in MID, but hey, what's a little experimentation between friends, right? He leaned in close, a predator's grin on his face. So what do you say, Egan? You can satisfy my curiosity in one way. He twisted the knife slightly, until the point was pressing against Egan's skin. Or another. The choice is really up to you. That's the end of Chapter 36. Come back next time, when the Summer Cell sets some ground rules for Daniel. Eleanor Fuchs said, It's as hard to get from almost finished to finished as to get from beginning to almost done. So let's see how far I've gotten this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of July 24th through July 30th. I wrote 2,238 words this week, over the course of 2.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 814 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 43 days without breaking my chain. This week I made a little more progress on my Alex story, Out of the Shadows. I had some big projects keeping me busy at the day job, though, so I didn't get to spend as much time on it as I would have liked. I also finished writing the new book descriptions for the Honor Bound trilogy, and ordered proof copies of the three books in paperback. I've decided to go with a smaller format for these, 525 by 8 inches instead of 6 by 9 and I think they look good. They're a little bigger than mass-market paperbacks, but still a good size to read one-handed, or to throw in your bag for a trip to the beach. The descriptions are a little dense for the book's back covers, though, so I'm going to see if I can tighten them up for the finished versions. 
I have some exciting news about the Honor Bound trilogy. This week, I signed an audiobook contract with two amazing narrators, Angelica Adrian and Vivian Ferrari. Both of them are longtime friends of the show, and are well-known in the podcast fiction community under other names. These are the aliases that they've chosen for their steamier romance novels, and this series definitely qualifies. Angelica and Vivian will be performing these books as a duet narration, which means that they've divided up the characters between them, and they'll be voicing those characters throughout the book, as well as performing the narration for the chapters that are written from their main character's viewpoint. I'm going to be the producer for this project, so it'll be my job to splice their audio together and make it sound like a cohesive whole. It's a step up in complexity from what I've been doing on my own books, but I don't have to do the narrating or the rough-cut editing, so I think it should end up being roughly the same amount of work. I'm super excited about this project, and I look forward to bringing these stories to the podcast after making the cut is finished. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this month. Say hello to Erica. If you like what I'm doing on this podcast and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For a small monthly donation, you help create a consistent revenue stream that lets me pay for things I need to keep this show running, like web hosting, podcast distribution, and cloud storage. You also help fund the artists and cover designers that bring these stories to life. For just $3 a month, you'll get access to exclusive content, like the first draft of the Honor Bound series, as well as character profiles and other behind-the-scenes material. Plus, all patrons get access to exclusive Metamorcity bonus art from our talented team of artists. Carol Foote just recently posted her sixth illustration for a Lightbringer Carol, showing an epic fight between Janus' parents when he was a child. To get started, head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.